Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. Peter had finally arrived at the home of Cornelius, a Roman centurion who served in the Italian regiment in Caesarea, and we find this story in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius had seen a vision that was given to him by God and was commanded to send for Peter, who was staying in Joppa. The apostle went with the centurion's messengers because he had also seen a vision. The Lord was preparing him for this encounter that would radically change mankind's understanding of God and salvation. Once Peter and Cornelius met, the purpose of this divinely orchestrated mission was revealed, or at least in part. It was only beginning to dawn on Peter and the six disciples that traveled with him the radical nature of what the Lord was doing. It was actually revolutionary in the spiritual sense of the idea. The door of salvation was being thrown wide open for the Gentiles to enter the kingdom of God without first converting to Judaism. We closed our last lesson looking at Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, where Peter began speaking to a large crowd gathering at Cornelius' house that were in expectation of the message that Peter would give them. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Even before anything extraordinary happened, Peter knew salvation was coming to the Gentiles, beginning with those who gathered to hear what Peter had to say. Powerful things happen when people want to know God and his salvation. It's very explosive, spiritually speaking. Picking up with verse 36, we will see Peter unfold the salvation story of Jesus in a very simple way that will have far-reaching results. Of course, the astounding results come from Holy Spirit and not from Peter himself. Yet how the Lord worked out the plan of salvation, he most often uses frail people to be his ambassadors in a perishing world. Peter went on to say in verse 36, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. The King James translated the verse as, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The King James Version doesn't contain the words in this verse, you know, since they aren't original in the Greek. Yet how the 1984 NIV translated the verse is correct. The translator's note in the Net Bible tells us why this is acceptable. They wrote, the subject and verb, you know, do not actually occur until the following verse, but has been repeated here because of the requirements of English word order. This simply means that since you know is in verse 37 and the idea is presented in verse 36, the translators chose to insert you know in verse 36 because it's better English. The idea that Peter said you know is very interesting, for it means that Cornelius and those gathered in his home knew about the events of Jesus and his crucifixion. I don't know how many years transpired since Christ's murder, but it couldn't have been very many, or those events would have been forgotten by most people. Rome crucified a lot of Jews, so for one crucifixion to stand out from all the rest had to leave a lasting impression. I would imagine that Cornelius, as a centurion, who was given the responsibility to keep the civil peace in Caesarea, would have been informed about the potential problems among the people having to do with Jesus. In the mind of Roman soldiers, Jesus was a potential problem because of the large crowds he drew. I would imagine that Rome had her spies that attended these large gatherings. Some were upwards of 20,000 people. 
the Sanhedrin and religious elite made sure they had their people keeping watch over Jesus, and the crowds he drew made them very nervous. If it had only been a few years since our Lord's crucifixion, then these events would still be fresh on the minds of the people. Now add to this the explosive growth of the church and a time of severe persecution where Paul was probably the driving force behind it all, then there's an even greater reason why Cornelius would know about these events. This is sheer speculation, but there had to have been some conversation during the journey from Joppa to Caesarea between Peter and the messengers of Cornelius. It could have been during this time that Peter came to understand that Cornelius knew about the events of Jesus and the growth of the infant church. Peter stated that they knew the message God sent to the people of Israel, which began with Abraham and progressed through the giving of the law. Then came the prophets who called Israel to repent and prophesied about the coming Messiah. The ultimate expression of Peter's statement about the message God sent to the people of Israel has to do with the good news that peace would come through the promised Messiah. This is called salvation history, where the plan of salvation unfolds over time to prepare the world to finally embrace the full salvation that the Lord wanted them to receive. As a convert to Judaism, Cornelius would have been taught about the coming of the promised Messiah, for that was central to the Jewish faith at that time. Peter boldly declared to all those listening that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and as such, he is Lord of all, which speaks of his deity. Whether those listening to Peter understood the apostles' import about the deity of Christ, we can't say. But they were coming to understand, at the very least, that he was the promised Messiah. The point that Jesus is Lord of all also implies that he's Lord over all people, both Jew and Gentile. Peter is declaring that the lordship of Messiah is being revealed to the Gentiles, for their time had come to receive the message that salvation comes by grace through faith, and not by the Mosaic law. In verse 37, Peter went on to proclaim, You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. Here's where the Greek actually does read, You know, which tells us that the events of Christ's crucifixion must have happened in recent enough history so that the events were still talked about. Peter mentioned the ministry of John the Baptist, which was roughly three years prior to Messiah's crucifixion, and this event was still being talked about since he was acknowledged to be a true prophet. As I have said before, there's more to what's being said than what's recorded. I imagine that Peter brought up John the Baptizer because he wanted to talk about repentance and how water baptism is a testimony of one's repentance and salvation by God. Peter went on to say in verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So many people were radically touched by Jesus that they would be talking about until the day they died. Those who were healed of life-disabling sicknesses, diseases, or accidents would have never forgot the moment Jesus healed them. And the multitudes that were miraculously fed by the Savior found their hearts burning within them as he spoke, and they never forgot those events. Everywhere Jesus went, he did good, real good, eternal good, and it was evident that God the Father was with him through the working of the Holy Spirit. There are many things that Jesus accomplished through the supernatural power he operated in, and Peter mentions one specifically, that he was healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. The implications of what Peter said here are far-reaching. He's teaching that sickness, disease, and other maladies are expression of demonic oppression. 
We have become so supposedly scientific that we can no longer see the spiritual realities that are behind what we see with our eyes. I'm not saying that divine healing is an easy subject to understand, but what Peter said forces us to look at what the Word teaches on the subject. The first thing I want to point out is that God always does what is good, because He is by nature good. Psalms 119.68 states, You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. Because God is good, He cannot do evil of any sort, because it's absolutely contrary to who He is. We may not always understand what is good or the good God is doing, but since He is infinitely good in nature, it's impossible for Him to do evil of any sort. Because God is good, He can take the evil that happens to us and turn it for our good if we submit to Him. The point that God uses the evil we experience, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted by others or an accident, in no wise implicates God as the one who did the evil in the first place. I don't believe God inflicts sickness, disease, and deformities on people. He came to set people free from them, not to enslave them to malicious devils. The suffering of mankind is a result of sin. It's a consequence of our rebellion. That God can turn our suffering into good doesn't mean He inflicted people with evil, because He can't, since He is good. But through His infinite wisdom, He can take the evil that we have done, or has been done to us, and turn it to our good. That's amazing. David wrote in Psalms 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. The affliction came from either David's sin or the sin of others. Yet the Lord used that suffering to help keep David from straying beyond remedy. What did God's work in using David's suffering accomplish? He learned to obey God's word, and that obedience brings God's blessing, while disobedience is discipline or divine wrath. I admit that the subject of suffering and evil are very hard to understand, so I have spoken about them in very simple terms. No one knows how God works in this evil world except God Himself. But if we will hold to these simple truths, then when suffering and trials come our way, we can weather the storm by still rejoicing in Jesus. Remember, God is good, and He never does evil, for He is the one who redeems us from all evil. The source of evil isn't God, but it comes through people and devils. Jesus came into the world to do good and to heal all who are under the power of the devil. Sickness and disease are not from God, but are the result of mankind's fall and the practice of sin. Yet the Lord can take our suffering and turn it to our good if we will only love and trust Him. Peter went on to say in verses 39 and 40, We are witnesses of everything He did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Him by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him from the dead on the third day and caused Him to be seen. I'm not sure who the we refers to in verse 29, but at the very least it's a general reference to the twelve apostles, and it may refer to the six men that were with him, or at least some of them, for there's a distinct possibility that at least one or more saw the life of Christ. The point is that there were multiple eyewitnesses of all the events surrounding the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Savior. In that ancient culture, this was very powerful, for most people believe the testimony of multiple witnesses. Lying has become such an integral part of American life that it's hard to know when people are telling the truth or lying to you. When people do tell the truth, 
Most people refuse to believe it. Here's the madness of relativism, where everyone claims to have their own truth, yet everybody's believing lies. Yet such a thought is not only thoroughly wrong, but it's totally illogical. There's absolutely no substance to the ridiculous idea of moral relativism. We have morphed into a culture that's defined by feelings, and feelings are totally subjective. When people are ruled by feelings, their feelings will dictate to them what they believe to be true or false, right and wrong, but there's no substance to that. Though people reject the truth for the insanity of moral relativism, the truth will always be the truth, and no amount of lies can ever alter that reality. The testimonies Peter was referring to are powerful, yet they are only of value to those who want to know the truth, who have ears to hear the truth and are willing to apply the truth to their life. We will soon see that Peter's testimony, along with a great cloud of eyewitnesses, had enough clout to convince Cornelius of its validity. Peter said that he, along with many others, were eyewitnesses of everything Jesus said and did in Israel and in the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting that Peter stated that Jesus' public ministry began in Galilee, which means that Jesus didn't do any miracles before the wedding in Cana. Those denominations that use extra-biblical materials to claim that Jesus did miracles as a boy and prior to the wedding do so by using material that isn't inspired by God, for they contain many gross errors. When the time came for the life of Christ to be put on public display for all to see, the Lord didn't hesitate to do what He was sent in the world to do. Even those times such as Christ's transfiguration where only a few men witnessed the event, when the time was right, they told their story and it mingled with all the others to give us the four Gospels. The point that there were eyewitnesses of everything Jesus did refers to all of his miracles and preaching. None of this was done in secret, but was open for the world to see. The testimony of these witnesses also include the suffering and crucifixion of the Savior. When the time came for Jesus to conquer death, he broke out of the tomb through resurrection power. In this account, Peter said that God raised him from the dead. This isn't a contradiction to verses like John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus said, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Here we see both the Father and the Son operating in divine power of the Godhead to raise Jesus from the dead. Then in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we are told that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. There is only one God who is triune in nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this makes up the Godhead, who is totally involved in Messiah's resurrection from the dead. The only ones that may have seen Jesus burst out of the tomb in resurrection power were the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb, but we don't have their testimony. We have proof of the resurrection, as Peter said, God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. The apostle clarifies what he meant by Jesus being seen in verse 41 by stating, He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Many have wondered why Jesus didn't show himself risen from the dead to everybody in Israel, to the Sanhedrin council. We aren't given a clear answer to that probing question, 
but a little bit of simple logic and an understanding of the word might help us here. Jesus showed himself to those he chose to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection so that they would be faithful eyewitnesses, and this is an important point. Paul informed us that over 500 people saw the resurrected Savior ascend in bodily form into heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand. Even if there were thousands of more eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus alive from the dead, the critics would still refuse to believe. The issue has never been if there was adequate proof of Christ's resurrection, because there is more than enough. The real problem is that people refuse to believe regardless of the overwhelming testimony. Plain and simple, they don't want to submit to God's rule over their life, so they reject Jesus and his resurrection. If Jesus revealed himself to the religious elite who had crucified him, it wouldn't have done them any good because they were determined not to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. It would have only made them more guilty before God. The same would be true for the multitudes that heard Jesus preach and experience his miracles, whether personally or saw them with their own eyes. We obtain salvation by grace through faith, yet the Lord never asks us to have blind faith that has nothing of substance to establish itself upon. Our faith has substance. We have the overwhelming testimony of the Old Testament that prophesied about Messiah's first coming. Then we have all the eyewitnesses within the New Testament, and the Apostle John wrote something along this line in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-3. through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you, we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What a phenomenal privilege those first disciples had in being able to know Christ in such a personal way. Of course, after our Lord ascended into heaven, they had to know Him as we do today. Yet to have seen Him face to face, touched Him, been touched by Him, to have seen the miracles and heard His preaching, it must have been astounding, overwhelming. What they experienced was for our good, so that we have a firm foundation to build our faith upon, and these eyewitnesses are integral to the integrity of the New Testament. We not only have the eyewitnesses of what Jesus said and done, but we have the Holy Spirit confirming the Word and the testimony of those first saints and with the affirmation of His very presence. We aren't believing lies that were made up in the minds of men that have no substance on which to base one's eternity upon. We have a firm foundation, and the Lord made sure this was offered to us so that our faith doesn't rest upon the wisdom of men, but upon the power of God. Peter went on to say in verse 42 that Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Once again, Peter reveals the divinity of Christ by showing that he does what only God does, and in this case, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Take, for example, how the judicial system in America works. This is a very simplistic description of it. The person being tried will be judged by a jury of peers. The case is brought before them through prosecuting and defense attorneys. The jury weighs out the evidence to determine if the person is innocent or guilty, and then the judge responds according to their decision. 
Even when this process is done correctly, there can still be errors in judgment because people can only judge according to the knowledge they have, which is always limited. It's radically different when it comes to God, since He knows everything there is to know and is everywhere at once, so His judgments are perfect because He knows the absolute truth about everyone and everything. For Peter to say that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead means He is omniscient and omnipresent, both of which are attributes that belong to only God. Therefore, his judgments are always right because he knows everything in absolute terms. And his judgments are always right because he is infinitely good and holy. So there's never a travesty of justice as if some innocent people are mistakenly sent to hell while some of the wicked go to heaven. When Jesus stands a sinner to hell, it's the right thing to do because he knows everything about that person, even down to the motives of why he did what he did and didn't do what he should have done. And when Jesus lets a person into heaven, he knows the absolute truth about that person, their sin and repentance and their pursuit of God. People don't deserve to make heaven their home as if they were good enough. But when the Father sees the blood of Christ on a soul, he accepts that person because of what Jesus did for them on Calvary. Peter said that the church is commanded to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Did you hear what Peter said right there? We are commanded to warn people that they will be judged by God. Yet the majority of preachers across the country refuse to preach that message, which means they are in total rebellion against God and his word. That's a scary thought. That's why there can be whole congregations going to hell because the pastor won't tell them the truth. For they are afraid of the people or afraid of another confrontation or afraid of being kicked out of the church without nothing. Yet each of us must stand before God, and if we refuse to tell others about the reality of divine judgment, then we are guilty of disobedience to God. And this is true for every believer, not just pastors, preachers, and teachers. Notice that Peter didn't say, we must preach the love of God but the justice of God. That's interesting. I'm not saying that we shouldn't preach on the love of God, because we should. But to preach on His love without preaching on His justice is to pervert the gospel. God's love is revealed in His divine warnings, and it's the absence of love that refuses to warn people of their eternal damnation. This is another expression of self-love and self-preservation of the preacher or the one who's doing the witnessing. If we love the Savior more, then we would love others better, and that greater love would compel us to warn people about the day they will stand before the just judge. The idea that Jesus judges the living and the dead simply means he judges people while they live in this life and then judges them when they die. This judgment can be for eternal life or eternal damnation depending upon the spiritual condition of the person. God judges people in this life so that they wouldn't have to be judged as enemies in the next. Yet if they reject his judgments, then all that's left for them is wrath. An example of this is seen in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Which means that God has revealed to the lost the reality of who he is, at least to a certain extent. Paul went on to say in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This is God judging them in this life, 
When God turns people over to sexual sin, it's a form of divine judgment. He doesn't make people delve into sexual sin, but by removing his restraining influence, people give themselves over to all kinds of perversion, including heterosexual and homosexual sins. When people begin to suffer for their sin, they are given an opportunity to repent, but if they refuse to repent, they will harden their heart and in one way or another go deeper into sin. This is why the preaching and teaching of Jesus on being the just judge is a loving message for it gives people another opportunity to repent and be saved. Without people seeing how wicked they are, they will die in their sin and go to hell. But if they see the truth about their sin, then the love of God is working in their life to lead them to repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that it's God's goodness or kindness that leads us towards repentance, not His cruelty or meanness, because He's neither cruel nor mean. The call to repentance is the most loving message that we can deliver. To preach on the love of God without the justice of divine wrath is an unloving message, for it keeps people in the practice of sin while they believe the lie that they are right with God when they're not. One day there was a woman that responded to an altar call I gave. My wife began ministering to her and told her that she could no longer live as a promiscuous alcoholic. True repentance always produces a spiritual revolution of the life. She kept practicing her drunkenness and sexual sin. So my wife told her that she needed to go to a specific rehab for women. That's a very good one. Then this woman talked to a co-worker that told her she was saved and that God loved her just the way she was. That woman lied to her and gave her a message of cheap grace and a perverted love of God. That co-worker is helping that woman go to hell, for the scripture clearly teaches that drunkards, and the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. We aren't to preach or speak about the reality of divine judgment in a harsh or loveless way, but through the true love of God as a compassionate warning so that people will repent and be saved. We aren't responsible for what people do with the message. That's between them and God. Our responsibility is to give them the message so that they might repent and not face divine wrath. The next thing Peter said is found in verse 43. All of the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus is not the law as the Mormon cult teaches, but he is the sum and substance of the law, so that all the prophets spoke either directly or indirectly about him, and that the Mosaic law is filled with prophetic words, pictures, and types, all pointing to Jesus. All this combined allows us to see that what happened with Messiah breaking into our world was a divine plan, not a time and chance event. The examples within the prophetic books are abundant, telling us various aspects of the coming Messiah and how he would bring forgiveness to those who repent and turn to him. We see this in verses like Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, chapter 52, verse 7, chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, chapter 59, verse 20. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 34, and in Daniel chapter 9 verse 24, in Micah chapter 7 verse 18, and in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 1. There are many, many more besides these verses. Peter said that he was a witness along with many others who had seen, touched, and heard the Savior. Now he's saying that all the Old Testament prophets are witnesses that Jesus is the just judge of the living and the dead. They not only testify that Jesus will judge the living and the dead, 
but that all those who believe in him will receive forgiveness of their sins. That when they stand before Jesus, the just judge of the living and the dead, they will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom and know the joy of dwelling with him forever. This is the true love of God. In verse 44, we are told, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. First, Holy Spirit convicted the people of their sin and then led them to repentance and salvation as Peter was preaching. Peter was only the mailman delivering the mail. The real work was that of Holy Spirit, who made the words Peter spoke real to them by both convicting them and then saving them. Holy Spirit had already been moving among the people in Cornelius' home, so what Dr. Luke recorded is something more than the moving of the Spirit in convicting and saving people. Verses 45 and 46 reveal this point to us. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. We see from this that verse 44 was talking about the outpouring of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Here's clear evidence that God saved those Gentiles. This reveals that the Lord had thrown open the door of salvation to those who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There wasn't cloven tongues of fire resting upon the heads of those Gentiles, but they were all speaking in tongues, and I would venture to say that they had one mighty Holy Ghost meeting that day. When that meeting was over, the excitement in those new disciples would have been intense, just like it should be in every disciple. And we see this excitement in the throes of genuine revival. We need a new Pentecost today, for Holy Spirit is still the giver of Pentecost and Pentecostal power. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come drink your fill